0: philosophy friday um sorry i just realized i actually said that andrea and myself would be with you yesterday and that was me and nick so actually i lied and that was a bait and switch so we're coming at you right now So i got dropped for nick yeah we dropped you for nick but um let me run the intro and we'll talk about this Great theme music.
1: I love it. It's questy. That's great. I still think uh, that the the theme music I sent you is, is good. I think it deserves an airing. I think we should put this to a public poll. Play yeah, the theme well, music I sent you. Yeah. Play actually, your theme music and see what it is. You've just reminded me
0: of, um, I have got a little bit of feedback that, you know, on, on the one, <laughs> I've, got, <laughs> I've got opposing feedback, right? Um, yeah.
1: Well, that's always the case.
0: Yeah. Where, you know, the one, the one uh, bit of feedback with our, intro um is that it's stuffed just before the awesome drum part and it's like musically it's a big no-no and sound like okay but then (laughs) then um the other thing is that the when the drum part continues the opposing feedback is wow that gets super trippy 80 weird you know pixel uh, media file kind of thing and, and uh, you know I that's kind of what that was my impression so that's why I cut it at that point and then we have got a third sort of strand of input on this um, and that's that it's just getting a little boring we need a new one and um and then you know to be fair we got the fourth strand that says we love it everything's awesome just stay exactly the way it is <laughs> um <laughs> so so there we have uh the quadruple Mike, your running. own vote doesn't count bro. <laughs> totally um so <laughs> <laughs> we, uh, we 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 got to figure out what to do about this i figure like you know all this we're actually getting some decent hits now downloads wise so it's uh, thanks for everyone that's listening it's um uh, we're cruising. It's doing well. You know, we've got. I think we're nearly at a thousand downloads a week, which is. Um, you know, I don't know. It's a good like intro to podcasting vibe, and um, and so yeah. just thankful for everyone that's listening in and uh, getting some great comments and feedback, and everyone's just kind of. Um, uh, just letting us know of you know areas that they've appreciated it and uh, just some suggestions moving forward. I've tried not to get too swamped down with hey, I'm responding to everyone individually, just because I know I'm not going to be able to follow that through anyway. So you know, let me just uh, make a blanket sort of statement there. But um, certainly, you know, we're we're hearing it and uh, I'm I'm processing it and we'll you know eventually it'll find its way. And it's just I'm not very organized, so that's why it'll take a long time. But basically, um, you know, the whole the whole kind of pod week. Thing I think is getting more and more refined. Uh, one of the things I'm thinking about changing is just making Whatever Wednesday to more a worldview Wednesday and then. Philosophy Friday A Federal Friday So that we've got You know Meredith Monday Two Kingdom Tuesday Worldview Wednesday Theology Thursday Federal Friday 1699 Saturday um, There might be something to that Just in that We're, we're keeping it in In the same sort of arena uh, We can still get philosophical On Wednesday
1: <laughs> It's the same thing Well it's talking about the same and thing And that's kind day. of the
0: idea Because the same We want to dissect the same concept From different angles And so grow in one Particular area so It's got to be uh, You know you know it's varied enough, you want it to be kind of niche in that sense. I don't know, maybe that's something that's something I'm trying to, but I do, I do enjoy whatever Wednesdays, gotta say, you know. So, it's, I'm taking yeah, because when
1: else are we going to talk about the Nephilim, bro? Yeah, and that's true. Well, it just, you know, wouldn't come up in no, you know, when we would talk about that.
0: Meredith Monday. Worldview
1: Wednesday? Meredith Monday. <laughs> oh, it's true. Yeah, yeah, anything he talks about. Yeah. So we just need to get a lexicon of all – of I mean, lexicon, uh, uh, kind of an index of all yeah. of the, you know, words he uses. And uh-huh. that's our springboard. Into totally. One totally. time. So
0: I don't think we'll more or less be dealing with the same thing. It's just it'll be a little bit more focused. So if you want, let us know how you feel about that. Um, and uh, we might, you know, just take that on board and move forward. But again, you know, maybe when we introduce that of Pod Week, we'll bring in a new tune. Hmm. What do you think? Mm-hmm. But not Andre's tune. Andre's tune was like boogie woogie. Yeah, it was like a boogie woogie tune. It was like... Uh,
1: okay, I demand that you play it to everyone else so they know what's going I on. I just care about you
0: too much. I don't want you to get slaughtered. I, they have the right to vote. It's just it's like, the it's the I'm, fruit of self delusion. You know? It's <laughs> it's what what's going on right now is gonna hurt you. I have to protect you. <laughs> Someone has to stand in the way. Oh, man. And stop it from happening. Hello. Yeah. Okay, so, You know, we've got it we need it's gotta it can't just be any old tune as well. I don't want just some like super, you know, weird kind of intro boogie woogie, you know, thing. I I don't want like a rock tune either, you know, like those crazy like guitar solo openings and it's got to be like dude we're on a journey you know and it's gonna be kind of yeah. classic
1: it's gonna be kind of classic <gasps> you know. You know? oh what about something yeah okay classic going on a journey do you know what i'm thinking what i'm thinking classical music from the romantic period it's like all chaotic and stuff it's oh, like no, no, tohu no. vabohu.
0: no don't like that <laughs> <laughs> we're not postmodern. modern for crying out love <laughs> nah, it's too much. But yeah. if you put like a bass beat to it, nah. then no, no, we right. want coherence, logic. We want all things Aristotelian. We want um, we want everything good that the Reformation produced by way of classical music. You mm. know, and yet it's all just a little too dramatic for an opening for a podcast. So, you know, you need to. It is. That's why I think I don't know the thing we got going right now is pretty insane. It's it's amazing. It does just. <laughs>
1: do that thing if you don't say so yourself I do I do yeah just Just put my thing on once Uh, I gotta protect you I think you should get Nick and Chris to do one as well and then we can do like a whole I think that's a bad idea. Um, I think the cool reason thing.
0: the reason you got to outsource stuff that's not in your direct area. Like Nick's <laughs> Nick's a musician and uh, I know that that would get nasty. If you if you gave him that job you'd just be like you take it too seriously. It would be too crazy. It it would swallow him whole, you know? It would take him away from theology. You've got to just um got to yeah, stay focused. Okay. Got to be focused. Got to be focused. Um, focused. All right. So anyways, we're talking about philosophy Friday. And the reality is that that is very much part of the philosophy of uh, the, the podcast. And we want, to, um, we want to think about that tune a little bit. But give us your feedback. But then moving on to something we had uh, in mind here. We've talked about epistemology before. Um, and uh, we mm-hmm. kind of have a, a, a sort of a thought or two on... Inerrancy, uh, although they're not fully developed, uh, you know. In that, we just mentioned it five seconds ago and kind of uh, ascended to the idea. But um, basically, let's let's see where this goes. Uh, epistemology and inerrancy. What happens to your epistemology if you don't hold to a close doctrine of inerrancy? What if your doctrine, well, doctrine of inerrancy is a little bit loose?
1: Yeah, I mean, I hesitate to go down the slippery slope argument because. You know the slippery slope argument is not actually an argument. It's just a statement of fear. Yeah. You know. Yes. Um, yes. Yes. So, like, but but you know, with that in mind, the slippery slope of that is that basically you you begin to lose control very very quickly mm-hmm. of what you can trust to be true and what mm-hmm. you can't. So mm-hmm. practically speaking, if you let go of an iner- of inerrancy, you let go of authority. Um, You know, it's just a matter of how long you could hold out before you eventually buckle, you Mm -hmm, know. mm -hmm. So um, that's practical. That's the slippery slope argument, which is a bad argument, but that is practically a a factor. You know, we treat it like if you you just have a slightly, you know, maybe you say something like, I believe in infallibility. But mm-hmm. not inerrancy, meaning, mm-hmm. meaning I believe the the Bible true in all of its theological truths, but not in anything else that it says necessarily. Mm-hmm. Uh, like it can contain errors, <clears throat> just not theological errors. The mm-hmm. problem with that is that a lot of the theological truths of the Bible are connected to historical truths right. or h- historical events. Yeah. And so, if you can't trust the events, you can't. There's no theology to be gained. I mean, yeah. how do you separate the resurrection? Of Christ from the resurrection from the dead. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, if Christ didn't raise, we're all now sin. So uh, the historical then is the doctrine. You know, it's it's um, yes. it's very very difficult to do, and then and it all even, just crumbles and withers away.
0: Like, how do you separate a floating axe head from the resurrection? You know, in the sense that it's one cohesive claim to the supernatural. Yeah, mm. exactly.
1: Yeah, yeah. so. So at a practical level, it's just very it's very difficult to hold to any kind of uh, confidence and assurance in the Bible's authority and truthfulness unless it is inherent. Mm. Um, uh, yeah. So I don't know if you had something else in mind, but that's yeah. that's the thing that comes first.
0: Totally. I mean, we did um, just to uh, send if anyone's interested in this. Uh, really, you'd have to scroll back on on the feed, but. Um, Around the beginning of the podcast, we looked at epistemology a little bit and uh, related it to covenant theology and and just exactly what we've said now in different terms. But it's just helpful to think about it in those terms sometimes in that, uh, as you said, you know, we we really have no way of knowing uh, God who is ontologically, you know, at another level to us unless God condescends in his mercy to, to reveal who he is to us. And that's typically what we mean when we say God entered into a covenant with Adam. You know, that's that's. That's this, mm-hmm. uh, of this means through which man might commune with God. That's, so when we talk about our covenantal basis for epistemology, that's very important. Um, but, you know, it, it extends into this issue of you know, because a covenant—how do we have access to that covenant uh, now? Well, the co- the covenant produces the canon. Uh, the the can- canonical documents come from that covenantal arrangement that God has made with man. Um, especially if you if you've worked through that at any level and you've tried to see what your doctrine of canon is, um, hopefully you've landed there good and well. Um, some of the best books out there on on canonicity uh, take that angle. I think um, Herman Rudevoss, um You've got, uh, you know, Klein's obviously got his structure of biblical authority, and then Warfield on his apostolicity. Um, but they all just uh, really nail down on this issue of God revealing a covenant to us, and from that covenantal um, uh, basis of epistemology comes canon. And so as soon as you're into that, you're into okay, so where are the, you know, at what level of, of inerrancy do we have these um, canonical documents? and uh, th- that we call the Bible. And um, obviously we're, we're putting all the weights of that covenantal epistemology on those documents. That's basically, uh, you know, if we don't have a- an assurance of those documents, then really the whole thing just becomes abstract. We never, we don't have mm-hmm. access to the covenant mm-hmm. anyway. So, you know, it might as well not even be an epistemology for us. So just wanted to firstly connect to the, that thing we've said prior. And so just to show the, the relationship as to what we're talking about now. And then, then, you know, moving forward, I've just finished reading um, this very, 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 very interesting book. Wow. It was uh, a page-turner. It doesn't sound like it. I'm going to read the title to you, and it's not going to sound very exciting at all. But um, it's written by, well, it's edited by Bovell, Carlos Bovell. um, And uh, it's a bit of an academic sort of... um, uh, textbook thing, but it's called Interdisciplinary Perspectives on the Authority of Scripture, Historical, Biblical, and Theoretic, uh, Theoretical Perspectives. And so, uh, you know, it's basically just... Oh, that does book.
1: not sound interesting.
0: And, no, no, not a, not a, not a great uh, <laughs> marketing team there, but um, I got onto it because Daryl Hart, I'm like a bit of a Daryl Hart freak, so he, he wrote an article, actually wrote a fascinating article about uh, the way in which um, inerrancy as a evangel uh, an evangelical idea... You know, has emerged um, Mm -hmm. Sort of uh, the evangelical test, really You know, like this is the in or out thing We don't really have well, we have a basic confession, but the primary thing rests on this, you know, do you profess inerrancy or not? You know, so yeah, the Evangelical yeah. Theological Society, for example, you know, you're in on on a very scant confession, and then the primary thing being, do you take the words of God seriously? Um, you know, mm-hmm, do you think mm-hmm. it's a, a inerrant verbal plenary inspiration, etc.? And, um, and so, it, you know, he just relates it to all these sort of teams. And so, basically, he's saying, um, you know, look at all these, look at the way in which we've created this this infrastructure you're in evangelicalism as a movement um, arising post second world war um if you can you know hold to this doctrine And, and and he basically shows how it just falls apart at the seams because it has no um uh what is it? How does he term it? It has no interpretive authority uh, w- when you don't have any ecclesiological sort of framework for it. So he, you know he, he's obviously coming out from a from a confessional viewpoint, um, <laughs> and um, he is um, you know thinking about the the need for a, a kind of Presbyterian confessional uh, ecclesiological framework um, as as a means through which to interpret this word, because otherwise what we're doing is, you know, no one's ever, you know, when it comes to interpretation, we never are actually looking at the word alone. You know, we're always looking at our interpretation of the word. And so you you lead to such fractured, you know, division because you're unable to, Mm -hmm. through the lens of any historical ecclesiological sort of greater framework, um, measure your own vision of that word to uh, you know against something more concrete and objective and so it just ends up it ends up becoming like a a random shibboleth he calls it you know just a are you in or are you out kind of thing but it means nothing it means nothing
1: and the way that that in practice gets measured out is things like do you believe in a literal six-day creation are you a young earth creationist um you know it's it's that kind of thing that becomes the, the test of whether or not you believe in inerrancy. And so I think the, the point you raised is, is hugely important, that the application of inerrancy or the understanding of it is linked not only to epistemology, the idea of revelation mm-hmm. um, from a God who is truth and truthful, um, but it's also linked to hermeneutics. It's, it's, it's linked to how you interpret it, because if you're interpreting it, in isolation or badly, yeah. uh, you're going to find all kinds of contradictions mm-hmm. um, that you're not going to be able to understand if you don't understand fulfillment or typology, Or you're going to you're going to be at a loss as to how the New Testament is using the Old Testament, mm-hmm. and all those kinds of things freak people out. You know, mm-hmm. um, so you 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 do have to have uh, a hermeneutic that flows out of out of the doctrine of Scripture as well. Yes. You know, that helps you to be consistent with it. Yeah. Um, So it is all related. But the other key thing that you mentioned is, um, you know, it is those documents. And most people do not know this. Most people do not think about it. But inerrancy as a doctrine only applies to the original autographs.
0: Yeah, totally.
1: Totally. It doesn't apply... To every copy, every translation, you know, your NIV translation of the Bible is not inerrant. No, no. So the major point, yeah. And people, whenever I tell people that, they're like, what What are you saying? That sounds bunker. Are you saying I can't trust my Bible? I'm saying you can't ever, I'm, I'm saying nobody has ever said that you can trust the NIV alone. Yes. You know, if you if you if you pick up an NIV and an ESV and, and NLT and a whole bunch of other translations and you compare and contrast them all, you you are fine. Mm-hmm. You are not going to get. But if you rely, I mean, just you know, going back to the conversation on Genesis six, mm-hmm. the translation there really steers your interpretation towards the demons and woman thing, mm-hmm. because it describes it as the sons of God and the daughters of human beings,
0: mm-hmm. yeah,
1: mm-hmm. which automatically makes you think this is an angel human thing mm-hmm. rather than, a, you know, this is a non-human being, human being thing mm-hmm. rather than sons of God, daughters of men, which is what it actually says. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, translations are not inerrant totally, and copies are not inerrant. Mm-hmm. And uh, and it is, uh, it is only the original things, that, uh, the original autographs uh, that were inerrant. But does that mean you can't trust the Bible? No, because obviously we've got so many copies that we can really narrow it down um, to like within a percentage, uh, like within 1% mm. of, of, of what was in those original autographs. So mm-hmm. y- you can trust that things have been... Um, What's the word? Passed down. Yeah, um, well, just accurately verified inaccurate. as the
0: original. Yeah, and I think even it's so. And also, just as yeah. the as the counterpoint to that, you know, in that you know you do it's so sure now. So much textual criticism has been done. It's So you know you're at that ninety nine point nine percent at this point, and it's like it's so sure that you know it's the one area that that you know critics don't even go to anymore. They 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 you know they might not believe what the Bible says. Uh, but they can't. They can't talk about the thing we have in our position now as being an inaccurate mm-hmm. representation of those originals. Uh, you know, it's just too. It's too much um, confidence now. You know, it's just a, it's an established science yeah. of textual criticism.
1: I mean, they do try, but you just have to watch the James White versus Bart Ehrman debate, yeah. and yeah. then that'll help you out. Totally. Well, you know, but, uh, they, they don't succeed. They just they, there's no
0: even the Bud Ehrman thing. I mean, you you sort of relegated to the fringe at that point. You know, um, it's it's not like yeah. mainstream critique of the of the you know of Christianity anymore. Um, so, yeah. you know, but it is important
1: yeah. though when it comes to you know you read your Bible and you might see uh, a footnote and you think, well, what's going on there, or mm. um, you know. Uh, you know, some kind of apparent contradiction in the gospel, I mean, it is possible, Mm -hmm. without rejecting inerrancy, it Uh is possible to acknowledge that there is a copy issue going Uh on. And Uh that doesn't affect our doctrine of inerrancy, and most people don't realize that. Uh People carry around a kind of fundamentalist view of inspiration, and yeah. people reject inspiration because they see that that's obviously not true. When yeah. they're looking at the footnotes in their Bible, uh-huh. and they're seeing the little, they could be this or it could be this, mm-hmm. or um, or they notice that some parts of you know John are not in some translations of the Bible, but it is in other translations. And yeah. they're like what yeah. is going on here? Um, a big issue. To do that is that people don't understand that it only applies to the original. So yeah. you are not rejecting inerrancy to acknowledge that there's a problem um, with a copy um, yeah. or yeah. with a manuscript family or something like that. Totally. Big and, point. That, and that that sort of escape from fundamentalism into proper, uh, you know, responsible evan- evangelicalism mm-hmm. is is what you want.
0: Mm. Totally you know and it, even just down to the languages, I think probably the the primary motivator for learning languages is that you know it's not that you you're gonna necessarily read the Bible, you know you could you could do the same thing, I think more or less with several translations. but the problem is like you know like the, the Hebrew allows for and I've just found this so often, you know English makes Hebrew way too specific. You know, um, it, it could be you have so many interpretive options for Hebrew. And, you know, obviously the guys are having to make some good calls on this every single, you know, sentence that they're translating. But it's just sometimes it really matters to know that there are a few options available. In fact, there always are, it seems, you know. And um, and so you have to string it together theologically, not just um, via good linguistical sort of study. And then the Greek is the opposite in that you just... You, you can't get specific enough it seems with with uh, English and you need the Greek to really nail it down um, and you know even at that level you've got to remember the the the, the, the at least the inerrancy is in a different language and uh, a language that needs to be understood and interpreted and applied and this in light of the fact that it's not the original that you're working with and there are a lot of discrepancies in the in the manuscripts and you have to make some calls on that so yeah I mean just those basic sort of Beginnings, uh, just at least, if nothing else, allow you to appreciate the work of scholars in in helping us to um, dial into what 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 exactly we're latching onto here yeah, by way of our epistemology.
1: Yeah, 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 absolutely. Because um, it is a, it is a shame how many people uh, you know I've come across who have rejected uh, the doctrine of inerrancy. Really, really reject, and then that—that's the first step in rejecting the doctrine of scripture, and sometimes the faith. Mm. Um, but uh, I, it's amazing how many people I've met who, who do that, and then when I speak to them about it, the reasons they give are not actually reasons to reject inerrancy. Mm. You know, um, and I know that it's not as simple as saying if they. Had a right doctrine of inerrancy, they wouldn't have rejected it because it's also got to do with the heart. Mm, You know, sin is a huge factor in whether or not you're willing to accept inerrancy because um, the authority of Scripture cuts right against my sinful nature. Yes. That wants me to be God over my own life, doesn't want somebody else to have the authority. Yeah. And if you can silence God's voice, uh, then you can live your own way so that's a factor as well in all mm-hmm. of this but uh, but for those folk who genuinely succumb to doubt mm. you know that and and they do not are not equipped with an a, you know a well reasoned uh, doctrine of inerrancy then yeah it's just easy pickings mm, that's um, right. there was actually a famous athlete in the UK who uh, uh, sat was went to some sort of gala event. Was sat at a table next to a, a well-known biblical scholar. Mm-hmm. Who basically, and th- this athlete was a Christian, and grew up in an evangelical church, and so believed the Bible. And that night, that biblical scholar basically just broken down, just mm. you know showed him all of the errors, supposed contradictions in the New Testament. And by the end of the dinner, the, this guy totally kind of renounced his faith. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was quite well, quite a well-known um, incident here in the UK. And, okay. yeah. um, but we, we actually analyzed it when I was at Oak mm. in one of our New Testament classes and it basically came down we looked at all those sort of contradictions and things that were cited mm. and none of them none of them um, were, were troubling. Really, right? You know, there were there were very easy answers to it, but just because so it he his... had a view yeah. of the Bible yeah. that was unsettled by it, that was yeah. enough. It just sort of it, it. It's it's why it's why it's not just what we believe; it's why we believe it. That that really does matter. Like, yes. you, if you believe the right things for the wrong reasons, you're building on a very flimsy foundation that yes. can easily be torn apart. Whereas if you are building the uh, the right things, uh, the right beliefs on the right reasons mm-hmm. you are much, much stronger. Yeah. And that's yeah. never more the case than in, with inerrancy. Yeah, I
0: agree.
1: 100%. I think so and, and you say yeah, so it's
0: super important not to have this weird kind of view of inspiration and inerrancy that um, almost treats the Bible as if it's more like the Quran or something, you know, Um, you know, this biblical asceticism where you, you know, it only seems to be the word of God as revealed through men over ages. But actually, it's, this is what it really is. It's the the, the King James version floating down from the sky leather bound and you know gold gold plated and all that and and so you know you have to make sure that you really tuck in and see what brought you that bible that you hold in your hands and what it really is and um and I think I look I I feel like I've done a fair bit of study on it it's only led to a, an increased confidence for me you know it's it, it did, <laughs> I must admit had to, it, originally you come in with those really weird sort of ideas uh, that you just thought you know, someone must have the original somewhere, right? Otherwise, how are we going to know about it, you know? And then your next thing is yeah. like, well, we got to get like the 100% translation thing right. Otherwise, how can we read the English one? You know, or, or something along those lines. You're just bringing these very, very um, simplistic thoughts into it to begin with. And yeah, those do need to get cut down. And maybe that does hurt a little bit. But, what gets built up again is far more sturdy and far more able to endure and far more, you know, revealing of the, the infinite wisdom of God in the way that he chose to bring us the word. Um, and it means that you're going to sit down with that scholar guy and you're not going to get chewed up alive by some random sort of points that he's bringing up. Uh, they just, they're just going to fall where they do. And, and they're going to be part of this robust understanding of inspiration that you have. Um, Mm-hmm. And so yeah King James only controversy is a good uh, was a good avenue to get that James White's book uh, was very helpful in showing you know why that's all wrong but it continues to be a uh, an issue of relevance um, and so it's it's always going to be a good book just because he chews that subject up so well um, but you know the other thing that we haven't really touched on that I think is also probably something worth. Um, Just at least initially mentioning, and then maybe we can come back to this at a later point and and deal with it some more. But, you know, often you have the, um, so what we've touched, I think, is just you've got the textual critic angle. You you need to know, um, you know, the various manuscripts involved and and how this process was, um, you know, how we verify the originals without having them. Um and then, you know, the, the the language issue is is big and we have to remember the translations that we have are, you know, they they're trying their best, but they're always gonna be wrestling with things. The thing that I think there's the third sort of dimension to this, and then maybe it's in the realm of interpretation, translation, um no, not, not translation, interpretation slash theology. Um is the you know, if you basically um have a view that everything is going to be inerrant um, in some sort of modern scientific sense um, mm-hmm. you know perhaps I'm thinking you mentioned earlier the six day creation thing and you know now not wanting to harp on that that issue so much as just to mention that often within those realms of, of thinking, there's a great big anachronism that takes place in that you're expecting you're expecting the bible to refute darwinian evolution from a scientific standpoint and then you know when the bible says something that's a little bit out of whack you know, you're asking the wrong questions of it, so you're getting the wrong answers. You know, and and that's what's creating mm-hmm. this weird yeah. issue. If you ask, you know, 21st century scientific questions, you're going to get the wrong answers. That's not the Bible. It's not written in that way or for that purpose. And yet, we are affirming there's yet an inerrancy. I think of Jesus and the mustard seed, for example. Um, you know, uh, yes. Or, Uh, What else? I mean, you've got uh, even Genesis 1 and and the idea of like, basically, uh, you know, one of the articles that I just read in this um, book, uh, this was uh, written by Paul Seeley, uh, where he talks about the old Princeton theologians and how they they basically, you know, were very much in that period of uh, a scientific kind of awakening and Darwinian mm-hmm. evolution and and so had to kind of cope with all of this stuff and um, very much wanted to enforce a historical grammatical hermeneutic and uh, assume a biblical view of, uh, a biblical inerrancy um, and yet found themselves just you know at a, at a real loss at a few points and so you know basically took their approach um, listen you know we just want to let this play out, let the dust settle, and we'll find that the Bible is right. And and then they, would, you know, where you had the, the Bible talking about the sun going, you know, uh, moving <laughs> around the earth, and you know what 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 do we make of that? And and uh, I mean, it's interesting because even in the in the writings of Francis Turton, for example, you know he will. Freely say, well, yeah, they, they believed that the sun moved around the earth, <laughs> and it's just kind of like there yeah, it is, yeah. and uh, that's probably true. You know, it's probably like the the Israelites yeah. believed that the sky uh, the sky was a solid thing. You know, it was totally solid yeah, blue stuff,
1: like a bolted dome. Yeah, where, you know, it, had floodgates in it. The-
0: yeah, and so even just in the reference to creation, you know, you've got the firmament being yeah. split. Is that a scientific description? Or are they, you know, and then Kelvin comes along and he's like, no, it's just, it's, you know, it's being accommodated to what they can see, you know, with their, with their um, eyes. And, um, and so you're left with a strong tension because, you know, it, it, if the Bible is affirming what they see with their eyes— you know, and, and often this is mm-hmm. talked about as a phenomenological, um, you know, understanding of, of the of the scripture. Um, it's not. It's it's only it's inerrant in that it correctly affirms what they can see. You know, it's not it's not uh, inerrant in its scientific claims at that point necessarily. It's not. You know, the the two are in different categories, and so you have to be able to understand that. Otherwise, you're just going to be walking up against the wall every every two seconds. Um, you know, the the Bible is talking about. Things in a certain way with a certain point. You're not, you know, and the and the goal is never to to uh, show ancient peoples that their science was very primitive. <laughs> you know what I
1: mean? Mm. Yeah. 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 And yeah. And and so, a kind of another way of saying what you've just been saying is that inerrancy is connected to authorial intent, isn't it? So you you have to ask what the author's intention is. Yeah. And what he's intending to say is true isn't there and so if the bible is talking about the four corners of the earth um that isn't um you know but it comes to us in a kind of poetic genre mm. where it's it's obviously just saying you know reaching me the, the ends of the earth <clears throat> <laughs> that you don't need to worry about whether or not the, the Bible is now teaching that, you know, there are ends to the earth or corners to the earth or something mm-hmm, like that. Mm-hmm. You know, these are figurative expressions. And even if they are rooted in a worldview um, where people did believe that the mm-hmm. earth was flat and on pillars and had a dome and whatever, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, uh, they those things always come to us. And I think this is this is a this is the real marvel. Is they always come to us. In genres like poetry, yeah. or apocalypse, mm. or mm. prophetic poetry, mm. where it is, you know, a, a genre which is, you know, basically begging you not to take it literally. <laughs> so yeah. um, you have to ask what the author's intention is. What is the author intending to teach? Mm. And that I take in, as inerrant. Uh, but what he's not intending to teach, I don't take as inerrant. As inerrant. So when Luke is saying, um, you know, I, I, um. I went around talking to all the different eyewitnesses at the beginning of his gospel. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I might present an orderly account. You know that what he's attempting to do is he's taking true eyewitness testimonies and he's compiling them together into an orderly account so that Theophilus knows what really was taught or what the truth is about Jesus.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: And that gives you something about the authorial intent of Luke. Mm -hmm. Um, But a psalmist isn't operating on the same level he's writing a poem song you know and and that's that's very important
0: Mm, it is I think that's a great point so basically what we're saying is like you know yeah beyond the um, genre that it comes to us in even there I mean you know just by the way that the scripture authors were kept in their writing of scripture um, and guided you know they they were kept in saying something that is uh, you know incorrect in light of its point you know so so that's the big thing um you know the 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 whole if they're making some sort of observation uh from their standpoint i mean whether it be poetic and whether it was intended as scientific even though the point is it's it was that that is where you even have a supernatural element in in um in inspiration where they were guided along and they were kept in their language from saying something that couldn't be affirmed at least at a phenomenological level. Um, but beyond that, I mean, I suppose there is a little bit of wiggle that we still have to cover in terms of accommodation. It is a bit of a thorny issue. It is a bit of a – probably, you know, admittedly the most difficult area. And I think a lot of good scholars are, are kind of moving in a direction that is, is, you know, is acknowledging that perhaps inerrancy is not – grappled with this enough but um you know where, where you have god i mean everyone would gladly affirm god accommodates to our understanding in so many different ways in the way that he's revealed himself um you know to what degree does that incorporate the worldview of the day um you know and and how does that affect uh, affect inerrancy is the big you know, question. But even there, I think all that means ultimately is that you're just gonna to have to tweak your doctrine of inerrancy. It doesn't mean that, you know, you and, and I feel instinctually you can just get that. Like it's not like it's not like you know you shouldn't you you're almost looking for a reason to fly off the rails in terms of the faith if that becomes an upsetting thing to you. You know? Uh, this yeah. you can all it means is you're tapering your understanding of the way it works. And uh, there's so much um you know that is obviously um, just truthful and verifiable. That it, it's the it's really we're dealing with the the little uh, odds and ends that we're just trying to understand well. Um, yep. But yeah, that's why it matters, though epistemology, right? And that's why we got to work at the yeah, stuff.
1: totally.
0: Yeah. Um, so hey, thanks again for joining us. I know it must be like two in the morning after your two day your two sermons.
1: It's uh, it's half twelve. Oh, it's bedtime. It's Definitely
0: bedtime, bedtime. Bedtime. You can dream about. Um, inspiration and inerrancy. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Nice. Love it. That's what theologians <laughs> dream about. Uh, <laughs> all right. Cool. Thanks for joining us, man. Appreciate it.